Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH. I am Alan Jones. You can't look or listen today anywhere, can you, without talk about Qantas and Alan Joyce. I'll look at that in detail in a moment, but should the talk be now about the board? Qantas is in crisis and Alan Joyce gets a good buy and thank you deal of $24 million in shares and cash, which prompts the question, what would he have got if Qantas wasn't now drowning in crisis? You get that for failing, what do you get for winning? All this under the watchful eye of a board that seemingly believes that all that matters is a bottom line profit of 2.5 billion, the principle seemingly being shareholders first, daylight second, and customers last. No wonder they gained help from the Albanese government to prevent Qatar from expanding into Australia, lower airfares would result, and that bottom line of 2.5 billion profit would disappear. In the light of the failure to look after customers, the most important people, the most honourable course of action is for the board to resign. They have presided over a company whose reputation has been trashed. It's unthinkable that it would require the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to at least allege that Qantas had secretly cancelled flights despite selling tickets worth more than half a billion dollars on those flights. Yes, I mean, Alan Joyce did get planes in the sky after coronavirus, full marks for that. But Qatar did more to bring Australians home than did Qantas. The customers tell a different story of infuriating flight cancellations, extortionate prices and lost luggage. Now, if you look at service failures, court cases, the possibility of multi-billion dollar payouts and penalties, surely the board has to explain why it allowed the reputation of our national carrier to be trashed. More about that in a minute. I'll have something to say later too about the fact that elements of the voice are already with us. True. The claiming of prime land near Balmoral Beach in Sydney. A truth commission already implemented by the Andrews government making absurd claims with which few Australians would agree. Just ask New Zealand about the mess that Ardern has left. If we want co-government, co-governance, then away you go and vote yes. And Anthony, Anthony Albanese can't hide from the fact that he's hitched his wagon to Qantas and to The Voice to say nothing of energy policy and industrial relations changes. Australia, I'm telling you, and I've been saying this for months now, is down the wrong road. And those in charge are too arrogant and too pig-headed to turn back. Last night, I was very critical of Peter Dutton over this nonsense of a second referendum. I explained that last night, that was something that should never have been entertained. He was party to a cabinet decision by the Turnbull government in 2017, which emphatically opposed a voice. And that's all he should be saying now. No, a thousand times, no. But Dutton, I'm telling you, is a good man. I know him well. Normally his instincts are good. Well, he spoke in Canberra today at a Minerals Week conference, and he was right. He warned mining chiefs that Labor was, quote, coming after your industry. With inflexible industrial relations laws, higher taxes and an anti-coal crusade because Labor views the resources sector, his words, a piggy bank for its coffers. Well, Dutton was right to say that the mining companies helped Australia avoid a recession. Albanese's resources minister from Western Australia, Madeleine King, she warned last week that Australians living on the eastern seaboard in the capital cities don't know where their wealth has come from. And she cited coal and gas and iron ore being worth $500 billion to our economy, half a trillion. I'd like to know, by the way, what she says in the cabinet room. So Peter Dutton is saying correctly, the mining companies helped Australia avoid a recession. What he should say is that he won't accept the demonisation of coal. Instead of talking about nuclear energy, which we all agree with, but it's way down the track, we've got to keep the lights on now. And the few factories that are left, I mean, isn't that phrase a disgrace? We've wiped out manufacturing, but the few factories that are left can't be powered on renewable energy. There's not enough of it. 
When is someone going to say that an invisible gas like carbon dioxide, which is coming out of my mouth now, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, cannot possibly produce changes in the climate? But every politician swallows this stuff because they haven't got the guts to stand against it. The best mind in the parliament in years, in my opinion, was Tony Abbott, who once said that this climate change hysteria was crap. He was right, and he'll be proven right. I've not yet met this New South Wales Energy Minister, Penny Sharp, but she was also right to tell her predecessor, Matt Keane, to get out of the way as she's looking to extend the life of New South Wales's largest coal power station, a rearing beyond 2025. Now, I'm told she's a lefty, but she's smart enough to know that we won't have sufficient energy to keep the show on the road if we find the, follow this blind ideology of net zero. And she's in government. She doesn't want to be answerable for it. She wants to stay in government. So she's right when she said that the coalition has left the new government in New South Wales with delayed and over budget energy projects. So when in trouble, go back to coal-fired power, even if you're on the left. I see the opposition leader in Queensland after my comments last night, David Christofulli, has taken a stand against this awful youth crime crisis. Speaking at Rockhampton, he offered the frightening but truthful statistic that the number of hardcore repeat juvenile offenders has doubled from 10% to 20% in little over a year. Now this problem is right across Queensland. The public are sick of young criminals getting back on the streets, stealing cars and breaking into homes. The fact that the Labor government is now making noises about all of this is related only to an oncoming election. But this is the end result of nine years of a Labor government showing more interest in the criminal than they do in the victim. And it doesn't work. I think on many fronts, the Olympic Games are becoming just stupid. I don't understand why multi-million dollar sports like golf and tennis are in the Olympics. Well, now there's talk that cricket will be admitted to the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics. Well, of course, Brisbane's got the Olympics in 2032, but it's cricket home, the Gabba, will be the home of the athletics, so cricket will have to go somewhere else. Cricket's made an appearance at the Olympics before. In 1900 in Paris, two teams appeared. But it's all about money, you see. Bring cricket to the Olympics and India will most probably bid to host the Olympics, 1.4 billion people, and a stack of billionaires, so the Olympics organisers would have their eye on that. Money first, sport second. Finally, a Senate report talking sport on concussion has called for sweeping legal reform. This is very significant, this, to allow professional athletes to sue for brain injuries. The Senate report acknowledged clear evidence of the link between chronic traumatic encephalopathy and head trauma. What I found interesting about the report is that when the Newcastle Knights player, James McManus, unsuccessfully sued the NRL, for allowing him to allegedly play with concussion. His case collapsed because New South Wales civil liability laws specifically exempt professional footballers. Hence the call in the Senate report for sweeping legal reform. And look, good luck to the Sydney Swans. They've made the AFL finals this weekend 18 times in the last 21 seasons. They faced Carlton on Friday night a resurgent Carlton, making their first final appearance in a decade. And the MCG, it's amazing, is it, Melbourne? Good on you. It's expected to be a sellout on Friday night, despite the forecast of rain. John Longmire, the Sydney coach, has done a hell of a job because, remember, the Swans had to be lifted out of the aftermath of that massive grand final defeat last year to Geelong. It is a young side, the Swans, but they make no excuses for youth. And look, just an afterthought, which was pointed out to me by one of my viewers, why do we call most Australians non-Indigenous? Which we aren't anyway, I'm Indigenous. Check the dictionary. Born here, this is a place of birth, you are Indigenous. However, that's not the way it's seen. We call most Australians who aren't Aboriginal non-Indigenous. And as my viewer said, we're the only country in the world that labels the vast bulk of its population by what they are not. And as for things like welcome to country, we're never consulted, are we? Think about it. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Well, as I already alluded to, much has been said and much is yet to be said about the departure of Alan Joyce from Qantas. 
To be fair to Alan Joyce, he led Qantas through a very challenging time. A lot of airlines went bankrupt through COVID. Qantas suffered large losses somewhere in the vicinity of seven billion. Alan Joyce got Qantas back in the sky, but customer service and pricing have been, I mean, if you can use the word, abysmal. Now you can throw a stone from Sydney to Canberra, can't you? The last time I checked a business class flight, Qantas was $1,100, Sydney to Canberra. I flew to Launceston recently to visit a sick brother. I needed to come back on the same day. I booked Qantas down and Qantas back, but I could only get Jetstar at about 9 p.m. on the night to fly Melbourne to Sydney. I'm a frequent flyer. At about three o'clock in the afternoon, a strange message came on my phone that my flight due to leave about four hours later, was, quote, being delayed. Like many passengers, I smelt trouble. Two hours later, the flight was cancelled. There was no attempt to consider the plight of passengers. We were told via text that we're all booked on some flight the next day. I had an important medical appointment. I rang Qantas and told them of these circumstances. The lady at the other end, I might add, was more than sympathetic and she apologised for the Qantas treatment of its passengers. I had to book accommodation by myself, no help from Qantas, no refund by the way. I was eventually told I could get it on a 6.05am flight the next morning. I had paid for the down and back, I can't remember but it wasn't cheap, but I was then advised that I had a paid Jetstar booking from Melbourne to Sydney because at the time I made the booking I couldn't get back to Sydney any other way the previous night. So I asked, how much would it cost to upgrade from Jetstar to Qantas Business Class? Remember, I'd already paid for Jetstar. How much extra to go Qantas Business Class? You ready? Melbourne to Sydney? $1,720. $1,720. They talk about the Qantas profit of $2.47 billion from ripping off passengers. Alan Joyce has earned north of $125 million since he started running the airline. But customers and employees are asking what price have they paid? When Qantas, oh, there they are together. When Qantas announced a 2016-17 cost-saving program, it involved axing, oh God, um, yeah, that was early on in the piece, axing 5,000 jobs. Now it has to be conceded that Alan Joyce would say, well, that helped keep the planes in the sky. I understand that but it's how the people were treated. You see, the bosses collecting millions and the workers, SAC workers were at Centrelink. The airline's now bursting with cash and the customer knows it's coming out of his pocket with extortionate airfares. And the Prime Minister's at the centre of this. He'll own the Qantas debacle. I told you last night, it's not gonna get any better for, for Anthony Albanese. Alan Joyce leaves. Qantas has reputational damage which will last a long time and the Labor government is tarred by its support of Joyce and Qantas. Now, the latest manifestation of that support was, of course, Labor knocking back Qatar Airways from doubling its flights to Australia. It was an explicit statement by the Albanese government that it mustn't believe in competition. It mustn't want lower airfares. More flights mean lower fares. The Albanese government didn't want more flights. Sensing danger, the Prime Minister threw his Transport Minister, Catherine King, under a bus, and the Prime Minister said he didn't know anything about the decision. <laughs> the Minister, Catherine King, said it was in the national interest. No one could explain what aspect of the national interest until the message was dragged out that Qantas had to be sustained. The Albanese government in another protection racket. And as for the completely out-of-touch Treasurer Chalmers, He's on the record as saying he didn't believe the Qatar decision was anti-competitive. You know, this is the Labor Party we know. Manipulate the truth and tell the voter the consumer to just bugger off. The former Treasurer, now Labor President Wayne Swan says, the government should review the Qatar decision. The ALP governments in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth agree with Swan. But what outfit was the Albanese government protecting? Qantas is now in the federal court. The ACCC is alleging Qantas engaged in, quote, false, misleading or deceptive conduct by advertising tickets for more than 8,000 flights, unquote, that it had cancelled, but it kept selling the tickets. The ACCC chairwoman, Gina Cascott-Lieb, made the obvious point that the travel plans of tens of thousands of people had been affected. She is urging a penalty for the breach of consumer laws 
of more than $250 million. And the ACCC has also said that its investigation has shown that Qantas cancelled almost one in four flights during the relevant 2022 period. Now, the federal court action prompted a response by Alan Joyce, who suddenly scrapped the expiry date on Qantas flight credits. These are people who bought tickets and the flights were cancelled. How do you get your money back? Well, they had to go through impenetrable rigmarole to get any service from Qantas, and the expiry date was to be the end of this month. In other words, you're not ready by the end of this month, you do your dough in. Now, belatedly, Alan Joyce is saying, oh, customers can request a refund at any moment, at any point. But the outstanding money to customers is reportedly $570 million. That's theft. Not even legalised theft, if there's such a thing. With customers made to jump through hoops to get their own money back for a service that Qantas didn't provide. Qantas talks about being the spirit of Australia, perhaps it's right. A modern Australia of greed and rip-offs, where the battler has no voice and labour inextricably linked to this train wreck. It's using the airline to proclaim the yes vote at the referendum. Albanese praised Qantas for making us a better country, for doing its bit, quote, these are Albo's words, to lift all of us a little higher, both literally and figuratively. Well, you can't suck up more than that, can you? But at the end of it, Alan Joyce, having sold some of his shares for 17 million, will receive a see you later check for 24 million. The board of Qantas presumes, I suppose, that the 2.47 billion profit has been fairly won. So it must be okay for the board to indulge itself while passengers are stranded in terminals. It must be okay to rake in double digit millions in paychecks while laying off thousands of staff and dismissing the need for greater competition, but charge airfares more than 60% above the pre-COVID rate. There's an element of schizophrenia about Alan Joyce, raised in a working class Dublin suburb, his grandfather prominent in the union movement, yet Alan Joyce now almost sitting at the seat of government. What gave Alan Joyce the right to brand Qantas on issues such as marriage equality and an indigenous voice to parliament? The airline's bursting with cash now, it won't last. The public are unhappy. Customer service and pricing are beyond unsatisfactory. And in all of this, the Prime Minister asked nothing of Qantas except its support for the Yes case. They actually are flying, by the way, the Yes advocates around the country. I don't know whether it's for free or not, but I presume it is. So wherever you want to go, if you're an Yes advocate, you get around the, in a Qantas plane. Oh, come on. Earlier this week, Alan Joyce and his chairman, Richard Goyder, said Alan Joyce wouldn't be stepping down. Alan Joyce was gone the next day. Richard Goyder, the chairman, should not be far behind. There is a reason Alan Joyce has departed prematurely. There is a string of crises unresolved, one of which involves the $24 million see you later payout. As a fresh person in charge, Vanessa Hudson, Qantas can only recover from the multiple crises that it faces if the chairman, who's presided over all of these, Richard Goyder, also departs. You watch this space. The Qatar decision will now be reversed by the government and the Prime Minister will have more egg on his face. I've told you many times, the Albanese government is in more trouble than Flash Gordon. As the song says, it's only just begun. Now look, what I'm about to discuss is different, difficult, mysterious and profoundly disturbing. It has been described by some as the most famous cold case in Australia's history. On Australia Day in 1966, 57 years ago, nine-year-old Jane Beaumont, her seven-year-old sister Anna, and their four-year-old brother Grant left their home at Summerton Park in Adelaide Southwest to travel to the nearby Glenelg Beach. It was a short trip, just a couple of kilometres. They'd made it before. But having made their way to the beach, the children disappeared. No trace of them has ever been found. For more than half a century, this has been one of Australia's great mysteries. Way back in 2018, five years ago, the South Australian police announced that they'd detected what was described as an anomaly in an area of ground at what's called the New Castelloy Factory. The anomaly was an area of disturbed ground around two metres long, one metre wide and two metres deep. The area was sealed off 
as a crime scene to be excavated with the assistance of state-of-the-art ground-penetrating radar from Flinders University. At the time, the geophysical testing of the site was commissioned by Channel 7. But in terms of the factory site, the significance is that the former owner was a man called Harry Phipps. He died in 2004 at the age of 85. I have spoken before about a book called The Saturn Man, written by Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins. In The Saturn Man, Alan and Stuart alleged Phipps was an active pedophile, quote, hiding in plain sight, unquote, in Glenelg. Their theory was that Phipps had lured the Beaumont children to his nearby house, gave them a pound note to buy some lunch, and later secreted them away to his factory where he murdered them. The title of Saturn Man came from Phipps' alleged fetish for wearing satin. Well, Stuart Mullins and the former detective Bill Hayes have now taken this a step further. They've worked assiduously on seeking a solution to these murders. And in their new book, Unmasking the Killer of the Missing Beaumont Children, it's one hell of a read, they outline corroborated information that has solidified their belief that Harry Phipps was involved in the abduction of the Beaumont children. The detail of that has been added to this book, Unmasking the Killer. Also added to the book is an additional chapter, the Mulligan Inquiry Chapter 24, or officially known as Children in State Care Commission of Inquiry, relating to the sexual abuse of children in state care in South Australia. That inquiry led to adults stepping forward, giving their accounts of sexual abuse as a minor in the 40s and right up to the 1980s. In those accounts, the name of Harry Phipps was raised again. Ted Mulligan, who headed the inquiry, has since died. He was a judge, an QC, and an advocate for protecting the rights of vulnerable people. In this inquiry, Mulligan QC said he had been totally unprepared for the quote, foul undercurrent of society which had perpetrated child sex abuse against wards of the state between the 1940s and the 1980s, unquote. Without exaggerating things, this is an extraordinary story which must be told. Just think of the parents. The strain of the children's disappearance, their three children disappointed, uh, dis destroyed the marriage of the parents, Nancy and Jim, who separated in the 1980s. The mother died in an Adelaide nursing home in 2019. The father died, Jim, only this year in April. Neither had any more children. Stuart Mullins, the co-author of this new book, Unmasking the Killer of the Missing Beaumont Children, joins me now. Stuart, thank you for your time. I mean, you've dedicated almost your whole life to unmasking this mystery. Why? Um, I was born in Glenelg. I uh, grew up in the suburbs around where the children live. They live at Somerton Park. I lived at Seacombe Gardens. I uh, attended Darlington Primary School, which was just up the road from Paringa Park Primary School, which the children attended. They were about three k's apart. That was in my sports competitive set. Uh, we played Paringa Park for cricket and Aussie rules. They frequented Collie Reserve, Glenelg Beach, um, on many occasions, as I did and the Mullins family. There were six of us. Um, and on numerous occasions, we would go to Collie Reserve. So we remember that that feeling of growing up in the 60s mm. uh, was the same as what Jane, Arna and Grant experienced. Mm. And so I was, I was part of that scene. I was, uh, was a child very similar to those. Mm. Um, and I had the opportunity to write, and you would know this gentleman, uh, Mr. Alan Whitaker, yeah. um, who was writing true crime books. And he sent me one. Uh, one was the Wanda Beach murders. And I said, if you ever get the opportunity to write about the Beaumont children or the disappearance of the Beaumont children, count me in. Now, he knew that I was born in Glenelg. And it was a week later that you got a call. He said, I hope you're sitting down. I've just got a call from John, uh, John Wiley and Son Publishers. They want me to write the first definitive account of the disappearance of the Beaumont children. Are you in? So from that point, and that was in 2005, I've been in ever mm. since. How can you understand, anyone understand, how the parents, Nancy and Jim, must have felt going to their grave not knowing what happened to their children? Absolutely devastating. Um, that not knowing 
that, that I mean, if you think about it, it, it's hard to put into words that just, that somebody so heinous, so cold and calculating mm. can just take three children and mm. think nothing of it Quite. and get on with their own life. Mm. Knowing that the torment you're leaving behind with those poor parents, but yep. having no feeling whatsoever. But then mm. again, people say they have no remorse, pedophiles, they have no remorse. They, they don't because the ends mm. justifies the means. Yeah. The sexual gratification mm. overrules everything mm. and then they move yeah. on. I'll come to the book and the story in a moment, but what you have discovered and what the Mulligan Inquirer discovered and Mulligan's words was a foul undercurrent of society. So that what was once relegated to the realms of hearsay, when you started in all of this, you and the inquiry have found it to be true that Adelaide did have groups of these like-minded, well-heeled men who operated under the radar for years. Stuart, let's go back to the beginning. What happened on Australia Day in 1966? Why did the three children decide to go to the beach on that day? Well, there's a bit of conjecture because we get a lot of people on the Facebook page that's saying, how could you possibly leave, you know, let three children go to the beach by themselves? It was the 1960s. We did it as a Mullins family. Mm. I was six, seven, eight. You were safe, yeah. You were safe. You mm. walked. I walked to, yep. down from uh, yep. where we were to Brighton to uh, Glenelg with my friends. As long as you're in, during the school holidays, as long as you were home before the streetlights came on. So that period um, of growing up, mm. uh, what they did, I mean, if we go back to that day, mm. Nancy was busy doing Shaw's uh, around the house and Mr Beaumont was up in Snowdown doing some sales calls for yeah. Lincott Linen. Um, so she didn't want them running around her feet. No. So <laughs> And they right. were so keen. They yeah. were so keen to get to Collie Reserve. So the kids left home at 10 o'clock yep. and their mother gave nine-year-old Jane eight shillings and sixpence That's for the correct. bus fare yeah. mm -hmm. and to buy some lunch. Do we know what time they arrived at the beach? And do we know that people actually saw them at the beach? That's a bit of conjecture, but uh, around the 10, 30, 11 yep. mark, around that, I mean... And people saw and them there? They saw them there. They yep. put their towels, uh, they placed them down uh, near a park bench, which they usually did yep. because in that chapter, uh, there's a chapter in the book, Jane's yep. best friend, Jenny, yep. they always went to the same spot. They put their towels down and ran into the... The uh, you know for a for a dip for a dip yeah but um, and you talk about them frolicking your word <coughs> frolicking with a tall thin man in Collie Reserve now that's as you just said just next to the beach do we know what this man looked like or who he was he was described as six foot one tall mm. um, he was thin athletic build he was uh, tanned um, was he that had Phipps. It were to a T, an absolute T. It said that his um, his hair was uh, light brown, brushed back and parted to one side. Now the papers, <clears throat> before this was corroborated, came out and said it was blonde hair. It was a surfy, long blonde hair that hit the press. Mm. So for years, and it still permeates the press today, yes. that the man at the beach had blonde hair in need of cutting. That is not true, it never has been true. It was light brown hair, brushed back and parted to one side. Mm. It was neat and tidy. And, and Phipps lived just a couple of hundred metres away, didn't he? 190 S metres. 190 metres, that's right. So do you know when and where were the children last seen? They were last seen at Wenzel's Bakery. So that's the cake shop, yeah. That's right, and they were buying one pie, five pasties and six finger buns with a pound note. That was the pound, pound note that the mother did not give yeah. them. That's right, so, I mean, that's a lot of dough. I mean, a one pound note. I mean, buying a lunch then with a one pound note, I think you've said this in the book, was like buying a bag of lollies now with a $100 note. Yeah, it was it to, to a child, and I remember seeing a pound note in my yes. mother's purse. Yes. And I might have mentioned this in the book, and for a fleeting moment, I thought about I could take that, but yes. it's very hard to, you know, you end up with a bucket of lollies and a lot of friends, <laughs> yeah. and, and you go, what am I going to do with that bucket? And you would have change over. You would get caught. You, wouldn't, you just wouldn't do it, but it was the wow factor yes. of the pound note. So the kids didn't get home. When was the alarm raised? 
The alarm was raised at about five o'clock, which was way mm. too late yes. because Mr Beaumont got home from Snowtown around three o'clock. Nancy was very distraught. Does she walk down the beach and she might miss them coming back the other way? Does she go to see the bus? The bus was only running every two hours, yeah. so they weren't home. She was very distraught and she, of course, her neighbours were saying, don't worry, Nancy, because nothing like this had ever happened previously. Yes, yes. Mr Beaumont got home and straight away they were in the car and they went down to Collie Reserve and looked around. And we've got to remember that back in the 1960s, Collie Reserve is packed, jammed packed. According to Moston Matters, who was the uh, the last remaining detective alive that was at the station that day, he said people don't realise how jammed packed Collie Reserve was with people. And the more people came in um, later in the evening to get out of the heat of the yes. midday sun because we had no air conditioning. No, 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 no. I was in a house that had a wrought iron roof yes. at 100 degrees, you know, so... So that's where you went. You went to yeah. Collie Reserve. What happened in terms of launching a search for the children and how big was that search and how many people were involved? It was big. It got bigger and bigger. Because and how, how would Phipps, I mean, to the ordinary man, it's just hard to believe it. I mean, how would Phipps escape all of that? Because we weren't looking. Right. We weren't looking for a Phipps. You we didn't were looking imagine. For a, no, no, no. You didn't a imagine. A dirty old man. Yeah. My parents, every now and then, they would joke a bit, watch out for the dirty old man. What they were really saying is, oh, the flasher. Remember the... the, yes. the yeah, they, And the parents would do this, and it was all giggle. But really what you're saying is watch out for the pedophile. So we expected somebody from the movie The Fagin. Uh, you remember, and of course he's yeah. not a pedophile, but, but Fagin himself. That's what we were looking for. Mm. And they never existed. And how long did they keep searching? Um, <clears throat> well, for weeks on end. And so then conceded that the children wouldn't be found and that was it? Well, it was interesting because initially it was just the missing persons because it had never happened before. So mm. they were never envisaged. The police talking to Moston Matters, uh, who is still alive today, is that um, he, he said it never entered our mind that these children no. could have been abducted. No. So they were missing, but we missing. were confused about yeah. what was happening. So they went around in the police cars and they had these speakers on the top of the, the, the police cars. It's very antiquated these days saying, yeah. have you seen, seen any quite, children? Yes. That's all they could do. I know. And then you had the news that would come on at 6 p.m. You might remember that. Yes. Once a day, and then of course it hit radio. A lot of people listened to radio, yes. and the children were missing. So, as the hours went by, then of course more police more, were called I in know. to go around the suburbs. And so, Jim and Nancy, then the parents lived into their 90s. They were long divorced, but they both remained in Glenelg in the hope of finally having their question answered, and it never was. Then Alan Whittaker wrote this book, Searching for the Beaumont Children, that came out in 2006. And then in that following year, I think I'm right in saying, you were contacted by Hayden Phipps, Harry's son. Why did he come forward and what did he tell you? Well, Firstly about the father and then about the Beaumont children. Well, initially um, I got a call from Alan and he said again, are you sitting down? I've just had a call from a lady called Angela Phipps. Her name was now Five. She was married to Hayden Phipps. And she read in the book that the man at the beach, the description, but also he gave out pound notes, which she was unaware of. She knew Harry had fitted the description, lived 90, 190 metres from Collie Reserve, and he was known to hand out pound notes. And she said, Stuart, the other thing is, I believe he abused my husband or former husband, Hayden Phipps. So mm. you just put that together and, and it sent shills down my my spine. And he told you, didn't he, Hayden, that he had been sexually abused by his father as a child. Yes. And didn't he tell you that the father had a fetish for wearing satin? That's correct. And with those types of comments, I had no reason to disbelieve him. And then he was interviewed by uh, former detective um, Bill Hayes uh, when we, we brought him on board yes. is that he was telling the truth because mm. only between 2 and 6% of individuals that say they were sexually abused as a child are lying. Yes. So there's a 94, around a 94, 96% chance that he is telling the truth. So the son Hayden said he had seen the Beaumont children come into the backyard of the family home that Australia day. Yes. Why had Hayden Phipps waited so long to speak, given that there was so much publicity about all this? Firstly, who was going to believe him? His yes. father was a very influential, um, very wealthy individual. 
Um, he'd come out and, we'll put it this way, if he came out and said he was sexually abused in the 1960s, no one would listen to him. Uh, we know that. History ekes that out. It's only now that people are coming out and are being believed. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't have been believed there. And to say, you saw the Beaumont children in your backyard? I mean, the guy could be committed. Yes. I mean, his, his father had that yeah. much power over him. Yeah. He knew that. So that in 2008, you put together all the information you had gathered, you went to the police. Um, the police weren't much interested. I mean, how compelling a case did that information make? Because the police did nothing, as I understand it. They just sat on the information for five years and they didn't, as you just said, take Hayden's allegations seriously and they wouldn't speak to anyone that you had interviewed. Why? Well, firstly, I was told by the uh, original cold case detective um, uh, that I was beating my head up against That's a right. brick Stop wall. That's right, beating your head against a brick wall, yeah. And I was chasing my tail. Once he told me that, and also that he had said that he'd gone and visited the uh, second wife of Harry Phipps. He told mm. me that in an email, and I've got that email. And then I hadn't heard from him. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go and see him myself. Never met her. Never met her. That's when I got Bill Hayes on board. I wanted to know yes, who is... Former detective, former detective. Yeah. He's your co-author co of this book. Yeah. yeah. And I said, who's the best? Who's the best private investigator in South Australia? His name came up all the time. And then Bill spent the next part of the decade working on the case. Um, you managed to finally get the police interested. How then... We can talk forever and a day about all of this, yeah. but... What, at the end of the day, did you establish? What was the overwhelming thing that you established that enabled you to come to the conclusion that a man now dead was responsible for the disappearance of these three children, tragic stuff, and do authorities believe your conclusions? I would say they do believe it, but this is the investigation into Harry Phipps is no, or the lack of, is no different to the initial investigation into Daniel Morecambe. And we saw what happened there. Once the parents got involved and they pushed and they pushed and they had an independent inquiry, what happened? Mm. All the cards yes, fell to fell the ground. And those detectives and those uh, police that were involved initially left the force, and so but, they but, should. I mean, have any traces of the children been found? No, no. We believe they're at the factory. Yeah. Um, why Harry Phipps? Because there's an overwhelming amount of corroborated circumstantial evidence directed towards him. Now, I was speaking to detectives, including Bill Hayes, when you're looking into a case, how many pieces of circumstantial evidence, corroborated circumstantial evidence, would mm. you need to really raise your eyebrows? Mm. They all came but, back three to four. Yeah. There's over 10. So basically you believe, because it's a dreadful story, that you have unmasked the killer and that killer was Harry Phipps? Yes, without a doubt. Mm. It's amazing the work you've done, Stuart. Look, thank you for your time. It's a terrible, terrible story. The parents are dead. Uh, the children are no longer here. Um, it's a stain really on the whole investigative system that those people who had these suspicions weren't believed. But Stuart, you've done a hell of a job and you and Bill. Can I just say one yes, more thing? Yes, you may. There is more to come. Oh, you? <laughs> and I, I think you better be sitting down. Oh, so we're yet to know about that, but you'll be telling us. You're yet to know about it, yeah. You'll always be welcome here. Thank you very much. There you are, Stuart Mullins. Extraordinary story, isn't it? And an unpleasant story. The Beaumont children who disappeared, never seen again. Mum and Dad dead. And the book explores all of that in detail. And gruesomely, I might add, highlights how these monsters operate. But there's your book on the thing. Eh, unmasking the killer of the missing Beaumont children, the co-authors Stuart Mullins and his detective mate. Well done, Bill. Bill Hayes. Well, look, there might be a referendum down the track, but sensible Australians must know that elements of what The Voice stands for are already with us. I mentioned last night about the secret meeting by Mossman Council, a blue ribbon elite harbour suburb of Sydney. They debated last night, as my colleague Fred Paul has reported, in secret, no one from the public allowed. A $100 million block of land on Balmoral Beach. This is an Aboriginal land claim. And the lefties on the council are most probably in support. Glorious land, 4,000 square metres just off the Esplanade, basically on Balmoral Beach. Widely considered one of Sydney's best family beaches. Prestigious land. 
But under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1983, Indigenous communities can claim Crown land as compensation for the historic injustices dealt out to them. No, not them, but... (laughs) Why would we be surprised? After all, aren't we told by all these militant Aboriginal activists that they own the land? It's been stolen from them? I've said before, the document released by the National Indigenous Australians Agency, and there's a stack of these funded outfits, but here is the Mossman thing writ large, because the documents say, in relation to the voice, quote, the dialogues discussed, there it is up for you, read it, discussed that a treaty could include a proper say in decision-making, the establishment of a truth commission, reparations, a financial settlement such as seeking a percentage of GDP, the resolution of land, water and resources issues, recognition of authority and customary law and guarantees of respect for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So there we are in Mossman, a confidential council meeting behind closed doors considering an Aboriginal land claim just off Balmoral Beach. They want a $100 million block. Vote yes if you like it. But we are sitting on the threshold of significant changes in the government of this country. Hand over your keys. You don't own the room you're sitting in. The urgency of a no vote has never been more pressing. From Mossman to Victoria, where the Andrews government has established the Yorook Justice Commission. It is the first truth-telling body in Australia. Hasn't been debated. This is what the referendum is about. The voice, sovereignty, witness the Mossman claim, and now truth-telling. And the Prime Minister has said he'll implement the Uluru Statement in full. Well, it's already happening in Victoria. Yuruk is the first Indigenous truth-telling body. This is Daniel Andrews stuff, never debated. This is the Justice Commission, truth-telling. It has the same powers as a Royal Commission. Its mandate is to investigate historical and current systemic injustices against First Nations people. Well, there's your first mistake. They might have been the first people, but they were never a nation. Anyway, a truth-telling body with the same powers as the Royal Commission. One of their recommendations is that juvenile detention should be abolished for all criminals under 16 and there be, quote, a separate child protection system for Indigenous children with all decision-making, power, authority, control and resources stripped from government, their words, and handed to First Peoples. Well, The Voice wants truth-telling. Well, here is a demand in Victoria from this truth-telling commission, the Yaruk Justice Commission. Here is the New Zealand experience on our doorstep, co-governance, according to this Victorian commission. And they want a new independent police watchdog with a, quote, dedicated division for complaints from First Peoples, unquote. And the division will be under the leadership of First Peoples. This is the voice already with us, sovereignty in Mossman, and here in Victoria, a voice in government decision-making, co-governance. Sensibly, the Liberal Party in Victoria have said there should not be a separate Aboriginal system in Victoria. There are 46 recommendations from this truth-telling commission, one of which says that the Victorian government must, quote, transfer, oh God, listen to this, transfer decision-making power, there it is, up on your screen, read it, authority, control and resources to First Peoples, giving full effect to self-determination in the Victorian child protection system. So here we are, the takeover, bit by bit. Activists for 3.8% of the population want to change the way we are governed. They want to govern. It's happening in front of us. A Victorian government spokeswoman welcomed the Commission's report and thanked them for their historic truth-telling work. Bit short on telling the truth, I might add. To his credit, the very limited Liberal opposition leader in Victoria, John Pesuto, I'm no fan of his, but he has indicated he'll vote no in the referendum. But here we have in the Northern Territory, as Jacinda Price tells us, unacceptable and historic and continuing violence towards women and children and nothing is being done except pretending that the voice will somehow solve these problems. Yet you've got a truth-telling commission in Victoria offering the brazen view that when it comes to Indigenous children, all decision-making, authority, control and resources should be stripped from government and handed to a so-called First Peoples, who are the same people making an unholy mess of looking after one another in the Northern Territory. 
This truth-telling commission wants a dedicated division for complaints from First Peoples, but that division should be under First Peoples leadership. What hypocrisy and irrelevance. Jacinda Price could give you a list of complaints from First Peoples that would stretch from here to Darwin. She'll also tell you that government and her own people for years have done nothing about them. Let's stop the humbug of a voice and the pretense that we don't own the land we're on and that we need a truth-telling commission. Jacinda Price is not alone in telling us over and over again the real truth about the problems with Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. The other real truth is that successive governments haven't had the guts or the moral fibre to deal with them. We are all sick of the humbug. Vote no. Let's go to Peggy in the United States of America, where clearly it is Biden in the eye of the storm. But before I come to that, Peggy and I have talked before about storms. Now it is a Dahlia. I never know how they name these damn things, but it's made landfall last week as a Category 3 hurricane in a small town of Keaton Beach, which is a private Florida beach, almost a covered playground, not your typical Florida beach. Adalia continued to tear through Georgia. It knocked out power to thousands as it swept through the southeastern USA. The region was reportedly drenched, rising water moved inland. Officials were calling it potentially deadly with high surging waters, and they said it was a once in a lifetime event. Fortunately, there were no confirmed deaths, but mass evacuations were ordered for thousands of Floridians, although many defied authorities and bunkered down. Trees were blowing over, but as one 76-year-old said, who experienced a pine tree falling on the roof of his wooden house, he said, well, it is the way it is. It is life in Florida. 250,000 homes in Florida, 230,000 in Georgia, and 14,000 in South Carolina lost all power. Some Floridians are saying they dodged a bullet when Adalia's projected ferocity diminished. I just thought we'd get an update on that before we go to this Biden fiasco, and Peggy joins us. Peggy, thank you for your time. I read where this Adalia was the strongest storm to make landfall in that part of Florida in over a hundred years. What is the state of play now? Yeah, thank you, Melon, for having me on. And it was a historic storm. Florida has lots of hurricanes, but this one, because of the location that it hit, really was something unprecedented and they hadn't seen in about a hundred years. And so thankfully there was no loss of life. There was tremendous property loss, but we see on the heels of something like this that certainly we can't control coming toward us, but good governance on the other side matters. And lucky for Floridians, they have a great governor in Ron DeSantis who has done an excellent job of storm recovery. Unfortunately, he has experienced with this Hurricane Ian hit last year in 2022, but Governor DeSantis has a great plan for evacuating residents when needed. He stages all the resources and assets that are needed. And so the moment the storm passes, he's got people clearing roads and restoring power. And so we see that this, this good governance really does matter. Yeah, and lot, and yeah. as a state executive, yeah. Governor DeSantis does a great job. Yeah, an interesting twist is that um, President Biden actually went to Florida last week, but Governor DeSantis refused to meet with him. And so some see on the left that this was a snub, but those on the right think that it was probably a smart move. Oh, smart. What on earth would Biden be able to say? He wouldn't know where he was, quite frankly. Just before we get to Biden and this terrible story about aliases and pseudonyms, which will absolutely rock you, uh, Peggy, is it true that Biden, the President Biden, won't be in Washington, D.C. or New York or Pennsylvania on 9-11? The first time a U.S. president hasn't been in one of those places. What's going on? It's true. And on the heels of that tragic loss of life here in America on 9-11 in 2001, there was this mantra that came out called never forget. But for Joe Biden, it seems like the thing he does well is to always forget. And he's forgotten the people of Maui already. He's forgotten the people of East Palestine, Ohio, with that toxic train derailment seven months ago. And for him to snub in this way the American people and not, not remember in a ceremonial way this tragic loss of life is really a slap in the face. 
Instead, he's going to be in Vietnam, where he's going to be talking about innovation and economic opportunity and, of course, climate change. While he flies on his big jet taking hundreds of people, he's worried about climate change. But the American people really wish that he would focus on economic opportunity here. So it's just one more chapter in putting America last, which we see far too often oh. from this president and this yeah. administration. You wonder, you, wonder who, you wonder who's advising the bloke. And just a quick one, does Jill Biden have COVID for a second time? I think she's had two shots and two boosters, her husband mandated vaccinations months and months ago because he said they were going to prevent you from getting coronavirus. I mean, I didn't grab the shot here, but he was talking to university students. You must have the shot, you must have the booster and then you won't, you'll be safe, you won't get it. <laughs> Has she got coronavirus again? She did. And of course, we wish her well. We hope that she recovers quickly. Thankfully, I think she just has mild symptoms. But to your point, she's had two shots. She's had two boosters. And now she's had COVID for the second time. So the ruse is up. We know that the vaccines don't work. We know that masking doesn't work. But look at the timing of this as we're leading into a brand new COVID hysteria. It's just in time for the 2024 elections where you can guarantee that we will see mail-in voting. We'll see a basement campaign from Joe Biden. We we will see schools closing and masking on kids and creating fear in the hearts of the American people. But the American people aren't going to have it again. And the polling shows that they will not comply with new COVID lockdowns. And even Anthony Fauci was on TV last week saying, I think the American people will be hesitant to pursue the path that we did last time. And you have to wonder if he ever looks in the mirror and does any self-reflection mm -hmm. and wonders and knows that Absolutely. it's because of him. Well, we were, lied, we were lied to. There was no epidemiological evidence for any of this stuff, let alone wearing masks or lockdowns, none of it. And that's now being revealed. Now, to Joe Biden, a massive story about President Biden, which I would believe would surely sink him, but is he being protected again? National Archives have revealed it has 5,400 Biden emails in which the president potentially used fake names to forward government information and discuss business with his son, Hunter Biden. Now, National Archives have acknowledged that it's holding around 5,400 emails, electronic records and documents suggesting that Biden, the president, used pseudonyms while he was Obama's vice president. I should point out here, National Archives seem to be on another protection racket because while they've acknowledged there are 5,400 of these things, they won't release them for the public to see. Where are we up to on this, Peggy? Well, I won't ask you on air, Alan, if you've ever used an alias, but it never, wouldn't matter never, because you're not a never, government elected official. Never. <laughs> <laughs> it matters because this was the sitting vice president of the United States. And the bigger question is, why? Why was he doing it? Was he trying to circumvent the system or any sort of accountability? Was he trying to include people in conversations that he shouldn't have, including his son, who at the time was a known crack addict? So what was the reason behind what he was doing? Now, some of these email addresses were .gov emails. And so what of national security or of confidential nature was being shared with people outside that should not have had access to that? And then some of these were actually Gmail accounts, which again, that doesn't have the level of security that a government account does. So it's 5,400 emails. So this was not inadvertent or accidental. This was intentional. This was habitual. And it goes to the bigger question of why. Why was Joe Biden using aliases? Why was he communicating with people outside the scope of what he should have done? And what was that about? So the American people deserve answers. And I hope we're going to get them, but we haven't gotten them yet. No. And of course, it'll be another exercise where the media won't give appropriate prominence to this because they want to cover it all up. The aliases included Robin Ware, W-A-R-E, Robert L. Peters and J.R.B. Ware, all pseudonyms that the President Biden, then Vice President, used while he was Vice President. Peggy, I understand this trove of communications was confirmed after the Southeastern Legal Foundation filed a Freedom of Information Act for emails connected to aliases used by Biden. Are Republicans saying that Biden used the aliases to discuss foreign business with his son and provide information on countries where the son was doing business? 
Well, we know that these emails exist, but we have not yet seen them. And so the Republicans are assuming that in 5,400 emails, they're talking about more than weather and golf. And so when you connect the dots, you have to assume that this is covering up something. Otherwise, they would be released. In an interesting little twist, though, President Obama actually is the one who has now been given 30 days by the National Archives and Records Administration to determine whether or not to release a lot of these emails that are covered by executive privilege. Now, keep in mind that Joe Biden, he came in and said that he was going to provide the most transparent administration in history. And so will Barack Obama help him with that transparency by releasing all of these? Or will he be part of the cover up mm -hmm. and continue to Absolutely. protect Joe Biden in this way? Absolutely. And the White House, just repeating, Peggy and I have said this many times, have insisted for months and months and months that Biden as president was never, or vice president, never in business with his son. Do the public know that high level government officials often use pseudonyms? to prevent being inundated with spam and emails from the public. Do the public know this? I mean, I think people assume this because you look at celebrities and other high profile individuals, they're not going to publicize their private information. But it's different when you're a government employee and there's certain rules and regulations that have to be followed. And in fact, when you look at the rules of NARA, I actually dealt with FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act requests when I was a political appointee in the Trump administration. FOIA requests cannot be ignored, but there is some discretion and subjectivity on what's released, when it's released, what the timing of all of this is. And so who knows how quickly this is going to come about, but we it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that it is slow walked, maybe even past the election. Absolutely. I understand the Obama administration has dismissed criticism that communications were secret because they're all archived. But Peggy, surely the sheer volume of emails must raise questions over whether the then Vice President Biden broke the quote unquote, he talks about absolute wall that he said was maintained between quote, the personal and the private and the government. Don't emails from Hunter Biden's laptop reveal that business partners referred to Joe Biden as the big guy. Now this Southeastern Legal Foundation submitted the FOR request way back and this is the point about the cover-up, in June 2022. And they are now alleging that the documents might potentially demonstrate instances where President Biden forward government information and discussed government matters with his son, Hunter Biden, together with other individuals. Now, Peggy, surely the only way to ensure governmental integrity is for the National Archive and Records Administration, NARA, to release all of these emails to the Southeastern Legal Foundation and therefore to the public. Yes, and of course, we want to keep things confidential that involve national security. But if there's nothing to hide here, then there's nothing to hide, and they certainly should release them. The American people have a right to know, because why are 5,400 emails being exchanged between Joe Biden, his son, who was a crack addict at the time, whose business ethics are clearly in question? And again, it goes back to the question of Joe Biden has said he wasn't involved in any yeah. of his son's business deals. We don't care about Hunter Biden. We care about Joe Biden. Yeah. Is he lying to America? And is he compromised in the information yep. that he shared and helped and, Hunter and, Biden and, with? And, and, the, and the request was filed more than 14 months ago. I mean, no specific emails have been provided. All that's happened is the National Archive outfit have acknowledged they exist. They say they've identified approximately 5,138 email messages, 25 electronic files, 200 pages of records, quote, that must be processed in order to respond to your request. Now, James Comer, the Republican, is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and he's demanding unredacted records from National Archives relating to President Biden's use of the pseudonyms. The purpose, as Peggy has said, being to look into the role Vice President Biden played in his son's international business dealings. Now, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that all of this, what is the media reaction in America to this? Is it prominent or just page 35? Well, I think they would like to say there's nothing to see there, but when they heard the number of emails that were involved in this, 
there's nobody who can deny that this is significant. And with the House Republicans under the leadership of James Comer, this particular committee that's going after this, we have every indication that they're going to get to the bottom of this. But the media will continue to be complicit with the president and with this White House to cover it up or at least stall it yeah. as long as they can. Yeah. And like everything, once the truth comes out, there's never an apology. There's never a correction or redaction. There's no. never anybody held accountable. They just move on and say, yeah, well, there was nothing to it's see. It's unbelievable. There. Just before we go, uh, for really the benefit is. of viewers, um, we're doing it way back in 2016. It's now been revealed that a worker by the name of Flynn in the office of vice president now would send Joe Biden his daily schedule. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The daily schedule. No, no, no. Not to Joe Biden. It went to Robert L. Peters at PCI.com, copied to Hunter Biden. So, Peggy, I understand that one email from the vice president's office, handled by this fellow Flynn, was being sent to Joe, a.k.a. Robert Peters, and CC'd to Hunter Biden. Quote, 8.45am, prep for 9am phone call with President Poroshenko, who was the Ukrainian president. At the time, Hunter Biden was being paid $83,000 and a bit a month, $83,000 a month, to sit on the board of the corrupt Ukrainian energy company, Burisma Holdings Limited. And Peggy Hunter Biden had started working for Burisma in 2014, but um, strangely, strangely, departed two months after his father left the office of vice president. Is that smelly or not? Yeah, you could not say that that is a coincidence. And you always have to look at how would it be treated if it was the other way around? If there was a Republican that was forwarding classified information, Correct. which would be the, the vice president's schedule, to their family member or to somebody who yep. was outside um, who had, didn't have the clearance for that. This is a national security question. And uh, the vice president of the United States at the time does not have the same executive privilege as the president of the no. United States did at the time. And so we will see, will Barack Obama come to rescue Joe Biden or will he let him um, uh, swing. be incriminated let, let him by swing. his own See, that, 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 that email from Flynn CC to the Sun and so on about the schedule was in 2016. But earlier, only a couple of months earlier, that was in March 2016. In December 2015, Biden threatened the Ukrainian President Poroshenko that he would withhold $1 billion in USAID unless Poroshenko fired Ukraine's top prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, who was investigating the owner of Burisma. December 2015, Shokin was removed from office in March 2016. Peggy, <laughs> I don't know. We'll resume our discussions next week, but it's astonishing state of affairs when on the one hand, we're loading up Trump with every imaginable charge and this kind of behaviour passes seemingly without muster. Yeah, I think that the American people are wising up to this. I don't think the mainstream media is going to be able to cover for this too much longer. And the American people are increasingly frustrated with all of it. They don't really have an appetite for a Trump-Biden matchup again, but it's increasingly look like that's what we're going to have. Trump-Biden 2.0, and I look forward to covering it every week from now until November 5th of 2024. <laughs> but we'll see how this plays Good out. Good on you, Peggy, and you do a brilliant job there. She is good, isn't she, Peggy? Uh, Peggy Biden. Peggy Grandy in America, and we'll talk to her again next week. Peggy, thank you for your time. Well, before we go tonight, Richard Miles is the 56-year-old Deputy Prime Minister. He is also the Defence Minister. I hope the stories I hear are not true, that he wishes to be introduced as Deputy Prime Minister, not the Defence Minister. He was educated at Geelong Grammar and the University of Melbourne, once married to the Victorian MP Lisa Neville. Notwithstanding his education at Geelong Grammar and that he's allegedly a lawyer by profession, he was for seven years the Assistant Secretary of the ACTU. At least he is a senior figure in the Labor right faction, so you would hope he'd see the dangerous path his government is leading us into with things like the voice, energy policy and wholesale changes to industrial relations. But he's in a spot of bother of his own. The former Defence Minister Linda Reynolds has asked the Albanese government to release full details of taxpayer-funded travel. She's accused Richard Miles of abusing privileged access to VIP flights. Now, it is obscene 
when Australians are battling with unconscionable cost of living pressure. Under Qantas, they can't afford a plane fare for a holiday. But there's virtually a confession by Richard Miles that his taxpayer-funded travel, and he's only been in government for five minutes, over $3 million of VIP planes. He was asked this week, but dodged the question as to whether he took his golf clubs on his flights. Parliament heard an allegation that Richard Miles spent $16,000 on a VIP flight from Labor's national conference in Brisbane to watch the Matildas game against England in Sydney. Couldn't catch a business class flight with Qantas, presumably. He's clocked up $3.6 million in VIP flights since April last year, not even 16 months, 3.6 million. Now, Richard Miles says that every place he's been to, quote, was in pursuit of my duties as Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Defence on behalf of the country. Richard Miles, that is pompous talk of the highest order. What is wrong with travelling on commercial flights when they're available? The taxpayer again being ripped off. Mr Albanese, when he became Prime Minister, talked about transparency and accountability. Well, Albo, talk it, just do it. Release full details of taxpayer-funded travel. And Richard Miles, you're meant to be a servant of the people, not a potentate. A Geelong grammar boy, I'm sure, would know that a potentate is an autocratic ruler. Richard Miles, you are abusing our money. That's it from me tonight and for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the programs. You can find all of them on the ADH app. Everything about my colleagues and me is there. Previous interviews and editorials. Of course, you can listen to tonight's program on the podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. And don't forget that number if you want to join me on this premium French river cruise. There are some suites still available for the Rugby World Cup. Fabulous shore excursions, the number 1300 786 888. 1300 786 888. And talking about the Rugby World Cup, I have been invited by News Limited to write some columns on the Rugby World Cup. Starting from tomorrow, they'll appear in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, the Australian newspaper, and the Courier Mail in Brisbane, and on Code Sports, C O D, C O D E, Code Sports Digitally. Code is the number one subscription sports site. My column tomorrow will talk about Eddie Jones, the real story. <laughs> You'll love it. And how we're likely to fare in the World Cup. As the song says, time to say goodbye. Thank you for being with ADH. I'll see you next week. I'm Alan Jones. Good night. <laughs>